Our sermon text this afternoon comes from Luke chapter 1. We're looking particularly at verses 46 to 50, which is roughly the first half of Mary's song known as the Magnificat. Um, We'll read the whole poem or the whole song, but looking tonight particularly at verses 46 to 50. Before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Now, Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures, and we pray, Father, that now as we seek to study and understand them and apply them, that we would be given ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts that are understanding and obedient. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 1, starting at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. The words of Mary. The words of a believer rejoicing in the goodness of God. Words of worship. Looking back at verse 45 of Luke chapter 1, we see Elizabeth say, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We're reminded of, once again, Abraham and Sarah. And we're reminded that those who believe the promises of God, that those who believe the word of God, are those upon whom God is pouring out his mercy and his grace, showing steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Mary believed that which was promised to her and immediately she undertook a journey. Mary didn't ask for a sign, but she was given one. She was told, your relative, Elizabeth, her who was counted barren, She's pregnant. And Mary went seeking Elizabeth. In faith, she went to see the sign. She went to see what it was that the Lord was doing. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaims, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary replies, and I think we can honestly assume that Mary also was at this moment filled with the Holy Spirit just as Elizabeth was. Mary was here speaking things that had come to her from God. Now, in the whole song, you know, many of the scholars and commentators, they claim to find at least 12 Bible references to various sections of Scripture in the Old Testament, 
Most of them are Psalms. There are also references to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and the Song of Hannah and Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. For example, in Isaiah 61 verse 10, we read, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God. Think of what Mary says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. She speaks forth in scripture, scriptural language, the kind of language that you get from a deep and abiding knowledge of the scriptures. My friends, there's, um, I just point this out. There's, there's no gift of miraculous spiritual knowledge. There is none. You don't become a Christian and immediately have your head filled with book, chapter and verse. How you get a head filled with book, chapter and verse is through diligent study of the scriptures, repetitive study of the scriptures, repetition. You must be willing to train and discipline your mind. If um, the thought of praying in public seems to you to be a terrible challenge and you're not in any way comfortable with the idea of praying in the presence of other believers, could the problem be that you actually don't know enough scripture around which to build a prayer? I realise that's a challenging thought, but is that the problem? Let's face it, if when you closed your eyes and bowed your head to pray, if you could pray and build on phrases of scripture, praying as the scripture has taught you, saying the things that you know are in accordance with the will of God because you have found them in Scripture, if you could pray in that way, would you actually be willing to pray out loud at a prayer meeting or at a fellowship service? And I think the answer then would be yes. Why? Well, you see, if you're praying in accordance with the word of God, you know you're not getting it wrong. You're praying that which God has set before you to pray. Mary obviously knows the scriptures, particularly the Psalms, but also some of the prophets. Have you ever met an older Christian, particularly now, I'm, I'm thinking of you know Christians in their senior years, but have you ever noticed that there are many Christians who, when they pray, they pray in what you might call King James language? There's a reason for that. They've read so much of their King James Bible that it's only natural to them that when it's time to pray, I pray in the language that I've read. They're not trying to bung it on, or at least I believe most of them are not. It's just a reflection of a lifetime of study. And they've studied the Psalms and they've memorised the Psalms and they have memorised large portions of Scripture. And an older generation than ours tended only to read the King James Bible. And so when they've memorised Scripture, they've memorised it in King James English, Elizabethan English. And that's why they pray that way. Set yourself the challenge of learning Scripture. Set yourself the challenge of doing something repetitively. Just because it's important, just because it's worthwhile, Discipline your mind to think God's thoughts after him. God's Holy Spirit will help you, but you still have to do that which is set before you.
If you want to know scripture, if you want to be able to speak in scripture, if you want to be able to interpret things scripturally, you need to fill your head and your heart with scripture. Now, I've had it said to me, you know, I've got faith in the heart and you've got it in the head. I don't know what people mean when they say that. I really don't. I've got no idea. Because if they have scriptural faith, well, the only way to get scriptural faith is to train your head to study the word. And if you can hide God's word in your heart, well, sure, you've got a, you've got springs of living water that will spring up throughout the rest of your life. But how do you do that without using your head and without disciplining your mind? And it is easy to do. It's just repetitive. The hardness of it is the required discipline of doing it repetitively. I'm just sharing with you my method of scripture memorization now. I'm not saying it's the way you must do it, but it is the way I do it. What I want to memorize, now we've got these electronic devices, it's so easy to make yourself your own document to copy and paste the passage you want to memorize into your iPad, your iPhone, whatever you're using. And then I read it five times, five times, three times a day. Five times, three times a day. If it's only two verses, five readings through takes less than a minute. You know, you can pick up a proverb in a week in this way. You can learn a proverb off by heart. It's not that hard. It's actually fairly easy. But it requires some dedication and some self-discipline to do it. I put the challenge before you. Do it. Do it. It is worth your while. It is worth your while. You know, you think to yourself, well, uh, you know, uh, I wish in my Christian life God would speak to me and God would, God would um, give me wisdom. Well, he's given you a whole book full of wisdom and a whole book full of his words. When I talk about the Holy Spirit prompting me to do one thing or another, I'll tell you honestly what's usually happening. Something that I've memorised, which is fitting and apt for the situation in which I find myself, is brought to mind. I've stored it up. It's there in the background. And then, at the right time, when needed, I believe God brings it to the front of my mind, as it were, so that I remember what it is that he has said to me in the scripture. See, I'm not looking for flash and fancy words. I'm not looking for something that nobody's ever heard. You know, if, if, if the Bible is sufficient and God has spoken the truth to us in Scripture, what more do we need? What more do we need? And if it's something that's not in Scripture, how would I know that I can trust it? But if God's word has been stored up, and you can then be prompted. And I do honestly believe in supernatural prompting by the Spirit of God in the life of a Christian. But if you can be prompted to remember that which God has spoken by the Holy Scriptures or in the Holy Scriptures, you'll find that you will get what I would call guidance from God in many different situations. And you'll find that when it comes time for you to start to pray, and to pray out loud, and to pray in the fellowship, and to pray at prayer meetings, 
scriptural phrases and terms will come to mind. And you can train your mind to build upon those so that you pray in accordance with those. And what Mary has done here is actually one of the finest examples you'll find anywhere of anybody ever doing that. And that's why I say, Mary, as Elizabeth was, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks and prays in a structure and a form that demonstrates her long-term discipline of memorising the scriptures that she had been taught growing up in a Jewish in a um, Jewish background, in a Jewish way. Let's notice what Mary says. And Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. My soul magnifies. I'm drawn close to God. If you magnify something, it's larger in your sight. It's larger in your vision. My soul magnifies the Lord. My mind is filled with the works of God. I see his works in everything around about me. Most particularly, I see his works in my relative Elizabeth and in my own life. For I, a virgin, have conceived and I carry the saviour of the world. My soul magnifies the Lord. You see... Mary understands something because her head is filled with scriptural knowledge. She understands that thousands of years and generations ago, it was said to one called Eve that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Thousands of years ago. And generations of sin and death and failure and misery have come from that time to now. And here at last, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman is being carried in her own womb. My soul magnifies the Lord. I see his works up close. And I'm my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. That answering the fulfilment of the promises of God brings great joy. Great joy. I'll confess some sin to you today. Don't worry, you're not going to want to throw me out of the fellowship. But I'll confess some sin to you today. Lisa will tell you the truth. If you ask her, she'll tell you this. For the last few days, for the last week, Scott has been a bit of a sad sack. He's, he's not been rejoicing. He's been um, struggling with things in the world around about. He's been struggling with restrictions that stop me seeing my own flesh and blood. I found it very hard this week. It just so happened that I was um, less than 20 kilometres away from a particular person. And I could not just go and see that person. And that person could not just come and see me. And I look at those who govern us and who impose these rules and regulations. And I see in the news that they're talking about carrying them on all the way through the Christmas holidays into next year. It's for your own good. We're saving your lives. 
and my spirit has not been rejoicing. Lisa will tell you. He's, um, he's let some things weigh pretty heavily on him and um, put him in a dark mood at times. Maybe that's my fault and maybe I should be reminding myself, count your blessings, name them one by one. Look upon the work that the Lord has done. Mary's rejoicing here in what God has done. You see, the things that God has done, the things that God is doing right now in the time of our text, they're things that can't be undone. They're things that can't be undone. Okay, those who govern and rule, they can undo things and they can put divisions between families and they can drop their heavy rules and regulations upon us. But they can't undo this work that God has done. You know, this is permanent. They're temporary. Before us is heaven and an eternity in the presence of our Lord. And the only rule will be that we will obey him with joy. Sin won't even enter into the equation. Imagine that. Rejoicing in the fellowship of the saints in the very presence of our God forever and ever. So I confess my sins. In some ways, I've taken my eyes off God and I've forgotten to magnify the Lord. I've forgotten to rejoice in the good works that he does. It's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to do. It's easy to forget these things. My spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. Psalm 34 reads, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 69.30 reads, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 106 verse 21 reads, They forgot God their Saviour who had done great things in Egypt. How's that? They forgot God their Saviour who had done great things in Egypt. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. As I said, I'm planning to look at this song over two weeks. Notice that um, in the portion that we'll take next week, she speaks of promises made to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, the scripture is in her mind. The scripture is guiding her eyes. She's borrowed these phrases from Psalms. They forgot God their saviour. My spirit rejoices in God my saviour. That's a phrase about the Exodus. Psalm 106 verse 21, they forgot God their saviour who had done great things in Egypt. You know, that great setting free from slavery. God came down and rescued his people. God visited plagues upon Pharaoh. God visited plagues upon the whole nation of Egypt. God rescued them. God led them through the Red Sea. God sent a saviour. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my saviour. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. We who are the servants of God understand something. We are under the supervision and the sight of God. He looks upon us. And my friends, 
when we are in Christ, he looks upon us through the lens of the righteousness of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that God is unaware of our sins and our wickedness, and I'm not saying that there are not times when God convicts us of sins. He certainly does. But what I'm saying is, as a general, as a general guide, God looks upon us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in his salvation. God looks upon us and sees not what we were, And in some ways, he looks upon us and does not even see what we are at this moment. What we are at this moment might be feeble, might be weak, might be struggling with sin. But in a sense, God is looking upon us and seeing us for what he is making of us. The younger brethren of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 26, likewise, Romans chapter 8, verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, that is the son, might be firstborn among many brothers. What's, what did Paul say? We who are in Christ have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Notice that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. The big brother of all big brothers, the big brother you actually want. In the book 1984, that science fiction book, that dystopian book, Big Brother was an evil ruler. Big Brother was one, was a, was one who had set himself up as God and he was an evil ruler. You see, evil can only ever do a weak imitation of that which is right and good. You see, the big brother who is our God and who is worthy of our worship is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he's the big brother that we want to be like. He's the big brother who has come to our rescue and will ever come to our rescue. Mary lived in what she called a humble estate. No wealth, no glory, no gold. Betrothed to a builder of houses. Betrothed to a man who worked with his hands in a very small and insignificant town. It was no high estate. It was nothing to attract the attention of the world. It was, it was, there was nothing about her life that, that would have um, made anyone suspect that she was the one that God had chosen, that through her God was to do a great and saving work. My friends, you know, not many of the great, not many of the mighty, not many of the wise, 
as the Apostle Paul says, have been called into the kingdom. You and I, we look at each other, we look at ourselves, we look at the world around us, we wonder what's the point and we wonder, um, you know, have we anything? And the answer is no. In a way, we are of humble estate. But understand, God looks upon us. This salvation that he's working in Mary, this salvation that Mary is rejoicing over, this salvation that God has planned from the very beginning of all creation, it's the same salvation that you and I rejoice in. It's the same salvation that we have been singing about here today. It's the same salvation that brings us all our hope and joy because there is nothing else. There is nothing else. There's nothing else we can count on. There's nothing else we can build our lives upon other than the hope and the joy and the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. God looks upon our humble estate. Mary goes on, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Notice it doesn't say all generations will call me an intermediary. It doesn't say all generations will call me some kind of intercessor, the queen of heaven. That's not what it's saying. This is a person praying, a person of flesh and blood, a person who needs a saviour. My spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. All generations will call me blessed. She's blessed. She got to be called the mother of our Lord. She raised the Saviour. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to come to that story of the Lord Jesus. He, he basically left himself behind in the temple. He didn't leave with the procession. And his parents came back looking for him. And there he was with the scribes, answering questions and asking questions, involved in the discussion. And they were amazed at his knowledge. Well, where do you think he learned that knowledge? Where do you think he learned that knowledge? You know, this young woman, most likely teenaged, this young woman who when it came time to pray and she was filled with the Holy Spirit, prayed forth in scriptural language, prayed in scriptural phrases, where do you think the Lord Jesus himself learnt his scriptures? Now, he was sinless. And he surely had the help of the Holy Spirit every step of the way. So he would learn the scriptures better than you and I do. I'm sure of that. But nevertheless, Mary was the agent that God used to pour the scriptures into the human mind of our Saviour. Mary. You don't know how much good you're doing when you do that repetitious task of learning scripture. You don't know where and how it will be used by the Lord God. None of us are going to teach the baby saviour. I know that. You know that. But, my friends, prepare yourself. Be prepared. Be ready to serve the Lord. Obey the Lord in all things. You don't know what it is that you're storing up. You don't know how it is that the Lord is planning to use you. Verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Just notice the way she speaks of God. 
God is a saviour. God is mighty. God's name is holy. This is the language of a faithful believer. You know, it, it should hurt our ears. There are things that we shouldn't hear and things that we shouldn't listen to. In all honesty, if you've got a favourite TV show and every second word that some character on that TV show is the Lord's name used as a curse word, I reckon you ought to turn away from it. Stop listening. Stop listening to someone who takes the Lord's name in vain. Holy is his name. He is mighty. He has done great things for me. Imagine that. He is mighty. You know, this is the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. This is the Lord who spoke things into being. He needs nothing. He lacks nothing. You know, I I have heard it said by people, and, and I'm sure they meant well, God created mankind because he was lonely. What nonsense. What rubbish. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, lonely? The three persons being the one God, lonely? The three persons in perfect and joyous fellowship, loving themselves and one another in all perfection? What nonsense. There's no stronger nor better relationship than the relationship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God is mighty. Nothing and nobody makes God God. Nothing and nobody makes God God. He is God just by his very nature, just according to his attributes. He is God. There's no part of God that is not God. When we describe God, when we say, for example, God is all-seeing, all-knowing and all-powerful, we're not talking about a part of God. (laughs) You know, you sort of... All-knowing, does that mean his brain is big? No, God is God. All of God is God. Every part of God is God. Furthermore, God is spirit, and we can barely get an inkling of what that means. God's knowledge is absolutely and utterly perfect. God is totally and utterly self-reliant. God is utterly and totally unchanging. He is totally perfect. Perfection doesn't change. God is God. God is God. There's not any kind of power that we know of in the universe that was not put there by God. And yet any power that we know in the universe, whether we're talking about power in creation, the power of stars, the power of black holes, the power of gravity, the power of fire, whatever you might think of. That was created by God. And God is infinitely more powerful than any aspect or thing in his creation. He who is mighty, mighty beyond measure, mighty beyond understanding, You know, if there's one thing about God is that we can know God, but we can never know everything there is to know about God. Only God knows God in completion and in perfection. Turn to Matthew chapter 11 and drop down to verse 25, Matthew chapter 11. 
At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now let's look at what Jesus is saying. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is praising God. For what? That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Imagine this. God who is God. God who is omnipresent. God who is almighty, all-powerful and all-knowing. is able to hide himself if he chooses from the wise and understanding. It's within his power to be unknown should he choose to. On the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't forsaken. But in his humanity, he was bearing the burden of sin. And sin makes a separation between God and man. And at that moment in his humanity, Jesus was not aware of the presence of God the Father. God is able to hide himself in his might, in his power. But even so, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Who are the little children? They're the ones who are believing the things that Jesus says. They're the ones who are believing that which Jesus says. And God can reveal himself to them. God can hide himself from the wisest of philosophers and reveal himself to what we might think of as the slowest of children. Should he choose to do so? And you only know God because God chooses to reveal himself. And the primary way God chooses to reveal himself is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the only son who is in the father's side. He has made him known. God chooses to reveal himself. This one who is almighty and all powerful. Yes, Father, let's read on. Verse 26 of Matthew 11. Such For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father. Now look carefully at this. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. Perfect, all-encompassing knowledge of the persons of the Godhead Father, Son and Holy Spirit is limited to persons of the Godhead. Perfect, all-encompassing knowledge of God is limited to God. God the Father knows himself in perfection and in completion and he knows the eternally begotten Son in perfection and in completion and he knows the Holy Spirit in perfection and in completion. And God the Son knows God the Father in perfection and in completion. Only God knows God. Or only God knows God in totality. Only God knows everything that there is to know about God. This is how mighty our God is. But he can reveal himself when he chooses to. And how does he reveal himself? No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who's got, let me put it this way, who's got all the power in this relationship? Who's taking the choices? 
Who's exercising their will in this relationship between man and God, as Jesus has here described it? And the answer is God. It's God who has the power to hide himself. It's God who has the power to reveal himself. God the Father and God the Son are both each fully and completely and totally known to each other. And God the Son chooses to reveal him. Who's exercising free will here? God and only God. He exercises free will. He has power, power in totality. He has all power. He is almighty. He has power over us, my friends. Every breath we draw, every breath we draw, every thought that we think. Back at verse 49 of Luke chapter 1. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. He who is mighty. This almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God. You see what Mary's rejoicing in. The God who is the creator, the king and the owner of the universe. Mary, like you and I, could understand that which God had revealed to her of these things. But she didn't know at all. She couldn't possibly, for she herself was not God, just as you and I are not God. But what she knows, which she rejoices in, what she knows fills her with joy because this mighty one does great things for me. And remember, she says that she comes from humble estate. Small time. She's basically saying, I'm a small time nobody, but the God of all creation does great things for me. Can you identify with that? I'm a small time nobody. My friends, in a way, we are a small time nobody. I see little motes of dust flicking around in the sunlight as I look towards the back of the room. And in physical terms, as compared to all of creation, we're not much more than a speck of dust. But, my friends, we're beloved of God. And in and through Christ, God does great things for us. And holy is his name. Holy. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. How could we approach such a God? We couldn't. But God approaches us. God the Son becomes incarnate. Remember, even as Mary speaks, God the Son has taken on flesh and is growing in the womb of the Virgin Mary. God is working a great, great work of salvation. You know, do you you ever sometimes stop and think, you know, you try to slow your mind down? I just read past things too quickly in the scripture. And I forget, I forget to be amazed at the things God does. It's good to think that way at times, and we should think that way at times. And we take it for granted. And we go to church for ever so many years, and we know that the Lord Jesus became incarnate. And we know that God sent his son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
and we forget just how wonderful that is. Sometimes we say those things too easily. We don't really consider what it is that we're saying. Holy is his name. Holy. He's too holy to look upon sin. He's too holy to have sin in his presence. We need saving. God is holy and we are not. God is set apart and we are not. Holy is his name. But remember, he does great things for his people. He sends forth his son for his people. Jesus, our saviour, is God, the eternally begotten son of God, having taken upon himself the form of humanity, having become a man, as it were, both truly God and truly man. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Showing steadfast love to thousands. That's thousands of generations. That's thousands of generations. You need to, you need to look at a few scriptures to understand that. Turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Look at... Look at verse 4, the commandment concerning the making of idols. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay, so what's the subject now? Generations the third and the fourth generation, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thousands of what? Thousands of people? Well, yes, yeah, certainly thousands of people. But what's the subject? What's the subject that has been numbered? Iniquity is visited to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate God. But steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thousands of generations. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Looking at verses 6 and 7. One of the most important self-revelations of God that you can find anywhere in Scripture. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's the same phrase that we just read in the law, Exodus chapter 20. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Thousands, thousands of generations. Mary knows her scripture. Turning back to verse 50 of Luke chapter 1. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You see what she's saying? She's saying over all the years, over all the centuries, over all the generations of sin and failure, over all the faithlessness of humanity, 
God's word stands true. God's promises are trustworthy over thousands of generations. The faithful are blessed and called. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. That phrase, to fear God. In the Old Testament, it's basically parallel to what we would call having faith in God. And my friends, if we have true faith in God, we ought to fear God. Now, we ought not fear God in terms of him ever casting us off. If we are in Christ, we are in Christ. The promise is that the shepherd will not let us go and that he will not fail in his purpose of working salvation out in our lives. But my friends, we are totally and utterly in the hands of God and he is our loving father and he can discipline as he sees fit. We're not to fear him, i.e. to fear that he will cast us off and reject us forever. But we are certainly to fear that he as our father will discipline us should it be needed. And if you want to understand your Christian life and if you want to understand the pain that you feel in your Christian life from time to time, always remember that God controls our every circumstance and if there is discipline being imposed in one way or another, it comes to us as a painful experience. That's just a fact. That's the way scripture explains our lives as Christians. You know, we think we're too smart as modern people. We really do. We think we're too smart. You know, we talk about chance and probabilities and the laws of science and nature, etc., etc., etc. And, you know, we sort of laugh at people. Oh, they think that everything's coming to them from God. They, they interpret everything spiritually. Well, look, it's possible to go stupid and to be hyper-spiritual. And in your eyes, every cloud in the sky is some kind of angel and etc., etc. It is possible to go silly. I admit that. But when you're jumping from the silliness of hyper-spirituality and pretend knowledge that you don't have, don't jump from there into sterile deadness where God is a far distant being who has nothing to do with your day-to-day life. The truth is always in the middle and the extremes are always on either side. The narrow path has dangers on either side. God is involved in our day-to-day lives. Our shepherd calls us every day. Our God disciplines his children. Sometimes it's hard to interpret what's happening in our lives. I know that. Even so, understand, nothing comes to us by chance. We are the people of God. We are the apple of his eye. We who fear God are are those who have faith in God. We trust in God. We fear to offend him. We fear to be separated from him. Even though we know the promises are for us in Jesus Christ our Lord, yet would you like to be separated from God? It's a fearful thought. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Would you like to be accused by God himself of deliberately sinning against him? And you thought that that should be no. 
No, that terrifies me. Why? Because you fear God. Do you think it's possible for sinners like you and I to come into the presence of the living God and not feel fear? At least to a certain degree. You know, when we talk about God being awesome, what is awe other than a word that expresses a kind of fear? We're awestruck. We know he is mighty. We know he is powerful. We know that we are totally and utterly reliant upon his will for every moment of our lives and every moment of our eternal lives. Of course we're going to be awestruck when we enter the presence of the living God. Of course we're going to fear him. As much as we love him, as much as we love our Lord Jesus Christ, as much as we know that the Lord Jesus, as I've already said, is our elder brother, elder brother into whose image we are being conformed, and that salvation is an eternal gift of God that the world cannot take away from us. Even so, God is almighty and all-powerful, and we know that he knows everything that there is to know about us, every thought of our heart. And so we fear him. God's mercy is for those who fear him. Those who do not fear God are not under the merciful hand of God. Turn quickly just for a moment to Psalm 10. Just reading the opening of Psalm 10, the opening few verses. The psalmist cries out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now he describes the wicked. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord in the pride of his face. The wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are. Now here's here's the wicked trying to convince himself that he's going to get away with everything that he does. There is no God. There is no God. I've got nothing to fear. I can do as I please. There is no God. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. He doesn't understand. What doesn't he understand? You see, his ways are prospering. The wickedness that he wants, the desire that he's chasing after, the things, the greed that he's serving, the things that he wants for himself, he's getting them. And he's thinking to himself, this is great. This is good. There is no God. I get whatever I please. Yippee, yay, more, more, more. But what's the truth? God's judgments are on high. They are out of his sight. He doesn't understand. He's being given over to his sins. He's being given to his sins. You know, there's a relative. Lisa and I have a relative. She, she knows exactly who I'm thinking of as I say this. And he is at this moment apostate, raised in a Christian family, raised going to church. He's been baptised. He's got a Bible with his name written in the front of it, signed by a pastor. And at this moment, he claims not to be a Christian. He claims to be an atheist. And, of course, the family prays for this young man. And one of those relatives who was praying for him was praying that he'd meet the right girl and find some happiness in life. And, and, you know, I said to the person, you don't want him to find some happiness in life. You don't want him to meet the right girl. You want God to keep breaking him down in misery until he repents and turns back to God. 
If God starts to give him what he wants, you know that God has handed him over to his sins. You want God to keep making him fall and stumble. If he ends up in the situation where his ways prosper at all times and God's judgments are on high out of his sight, wow, he's in a very, very bad place. I'm praying for his salvation and in a way I'm praying for his misery with regards to the things of the world. I don't want him to find any joy or pleasure in them. I don't want them to be in any way fulfilling for him. I want everything to keep going wrong. I want everywhere that everything that his hand touches not to turn to gold, but to turn to something else. Dirt, let's say. I want him to learn to fear God. And if he's to learn to fear God, he's going to have to learn to acknowledge the discipline of God. And so as we pray for his salvation, we're not praying that things go well for him in worldly terms. We're actually praying that things go badly for him in worldly terms. Because at this moment, God's judgments are on high, out of his sight. God's mercy, back with Mary's prayer, is for those who fear him. For those who fear him. Those who fear God have received the gift of God's grace. They've received mercy from God. It's a mercy if you fear God. It's an act of mercy from God if you fear offending the living God. It's God's mercy that teaches us to fear aright. We should fear God. And in fearing God, we should fear no man. We should fear no man, no circumstance, nothing that the world can throw at us. We trust in our heavenly father. We fear his discipline. Therefore, we live in a way that pleases him. My friends, this is the God that Mary sings of. This is the saviour that Mary sings of. She carries God incarnate within herself at this time. She's the mother of our Lord. She prays in terms of scripture. She prays theologically correctly because she has filled her heart with the word of God. In the end, that's what true worshippers do. They love the word of God and they feed on the word of God and they keep coming back to the word of God. We're the sheep of his pasture. We're meant to be fed upon the word of God and we're meant to hunger for that word. And obviously Mary was familiar with the hunger for the word of God and she feasted often upon that which God had given to her, the Holy Scriptures. And so God has done great things through Mary and all generations call her blessed because she, by the power of God, in accordance with the electing grace of God, was used by God to bring into the world the serpent-crushing Son of God, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do give you our thanks and our praise that you have made yourself known to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, our Father, that so great is your love for us that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Father in heaven, may we walk faithfully according to your word, 
May we love you according to that which you have revealed to us of yourself through Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us, Father, to indeed be conformed into the image and the likeness of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.